I pulled this off of CNN.com from today. So this is fresh. It says, America woke up Wednesday, looked into a giant mirror made up of millions of votes and saw how it has been changing for decades. For the first time, voters approved same-sex marriage in three states. Margaret Hoover called it a watershed moment. Meanwhile, Wisconsin elected the country's first openly gay U.S. senator. Two states legalized the recreational use of marijuana. All this would have been unthinkable a generation ago. Tuesday's election showed that the United States is redefining what it means to be an American. Some political and social observers say the country is less conservative than popular belief suggests. It's no longer the same America. The nation has arrived at a new normal. Uh, right off of CNN.com this morning. I don't know how that sits with every one of you in this room. As I watched my Facebook wall for the hours following the election, I saw a mixed reaction. Uh, from some, there was an exuberance, almost as though we had entered into a new dawn, uh, a new exciting chapter of American history. For others, there was a sense of disappointment, uh, discontent, uh, a yearning, a uh, a yearning for change. Some even said, I'm going to move to Canada. Uh, there were whispers of revolution, even on Facebook. Uh, one, one of the more extreme ones I saw, there's been a petition issued to whitehouse.gov from someone in Louisiana that said, we petitioned the administration to peacefully grant the state of Louisiana to withdraw from the United States of America and create its own new government. Uh, They're aiming for 25,000 signatures by December 7th. It was put up three days ago, and they've got 4,000. After the election, I went to bed uh, with a whole mixture of emotions going on. I woke up at 4 a.m., and and I pulled out the eternal, unchanging Word of God. I opened it up, and after some time in there, I was reminded of something very important. That God's primary agent for real hope and change in our world was the same the morning after the election as it was the day before. And that's true no matter who would have been elected and how any of those issues would have fallen. God's primary hope for change and hope in our world is not Democrat and it's not Republican. It's not socialism and it's not capitalism. It's not even solely American. God's hope for change in this world doesn't come with four-year term limits. In fact, it's been a force for over 2,000 years. His primary agent for hope and change in this world is the spirit-filled body of Christ and the gospel that we carry. That was true the day before the election. It's true Now, in this spirit-filled body of Christ called the church, we've been looking at the beginnings of it, right, in the book of Acts. It's been exciting. We, We saw how it started with 120 believers in an upper room. We saw the spirit come in power upon that group of believers. And they began to speak the gospel in other languages to visitors to that town. Peter, standing in a world, listen to this, in the city that had Jesus crucified. 
You talk about a, a dark moment, a dark place, a place that was opposed to what he believed. You know, sometimes we act as, or maybe fall into the, the notion that today is maybe darker than it has been in the past, and maybe in some ways it is, but this, this idea of holding on to a faith that's opposed by many in the world is nothing new. Peter stood in the city that, that crucified Jesus. He stood in a world filled with sin that God hated, yet filled with people that God longed to save, much like you and I do. And I think it's instructive to look at what he did in that moment. Peter preached the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, that he had come and died and risen again. And if they would believe in him, repent and put their trust in him, they would be saved. 3,000 were saved at that moment. And I want to look tonight at, if, if the church really is God's primary hope for change in this world, what did that early church look like? What did they do? What did they hold on to and what did God do through them in the power of the Spirit? Because you know what? We're part of the same church. So if we look at how they started, how we started, it ought to shape how we act today. I want to start out by saying, what happens when 3,000 people get saved? <laughs> I mean, you, <laughs> you talk about uh, uh, pastors' highest wishes and worst nightmares all at the same time, right? Like, awesome, 3,000 people were saved. Holy cow, what do we do with 3,000 people? All right, they, you know, we can't wait till tomorrow. They're saved now. What do we do with, with 3,000 people? I'm going to tell you something you don't see that happened with these 3,000 people that embraced Jesus. There's not a verse in Acts chapter 2 that says that they began talking to each other and said to one another, you know, this was a powerful moment where we all believed in Jesus and all, but, but from here on out, this whole thing with Jesus is just between me and him. It's going to get personal now. You know, my, my church is my time in the mountains. I, I don't need to rest y'all. We'll see you later. This has been fun. I'm going to go do this Jesus thing on my own. You don't read that. You don't read that anywhere in the New Testament, this idea that somehow Christianity is a, a solo walk. Yes, it, it starts when you trust in Jesus, and that's a, a personal decision. And yes, you can be a convert that way, but you cannot be a disciple or a follower of Jesus that way. And the thing is, Jesus didn't say go into all the world and make converts, did he? What's a convert? It's someone who makes a decision to believe in Jesus. He said to go in the world and make disciples. What's a disciple? The follower, someone that follows Jesus. And that happens in the context of community. That's why it says they devoted themselves to a couple of things. The apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. They were committed, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But this discipleship thing, I, I want to camp on it a little bit. I think if you've been here long enough, I'm going to have to apologize, because some of you may have heard this, but I love this illustration, and I love the guy's accent. I don't know if I would have remembered it if he hadn't had this cool Indian accent. So I'm going to try my best. Just You'll probably remember it better if I say it like he did. I was at a conference in Austin, Texas, and this man who's planted churches in India was there, and he was asking this room of 2,000 pastors, I have a question for you today. 
He said, when mango reproduce, what it make? And, and some, some people in the crowd said just that. They, re, they said, mango. And he said, oh, that's interesting. He said, only in Austin, Texas does mango make mango. Where I come from, mango make mango tree. <laughs> Sorry, I set you guys up. I said, I said mango quietly when I was sitting in that same conference. His point was, as Christians, just like that mango, when it reproduces, makes a mango tree that then makes many more mangoes, we are called not just to win people to Jesus. We're called to train them, come alongside them so that they go on to multiply and win others to Jesus, to be disciples who make disciples who make disciples. So how's that happen? How do these 3,000 go from unsaved people opposed to Jesus and the gospel to saved people who are going to go on to make other people that believe? It's because they were devoted to a couple things, the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. And you'll look and you'll see that it also talks about to the breaking of bread and to prayer. But most people believe that breaking of bread and prayer sort of define what fellowship is. So I'm going to sum this up in two ways. When you look at the apostles' teaching, and then we'll break it down, they were people of the word. They were people of the word of God. And when we look at the fellowship, they were people of fellowship. That word devoted is a really interesting word. When you break it down in the Greek, it really has the idea of a single-minded focus, a single-minded, unbroken commitment to go after something. Some of you guys in here know that from when you were dating your wives and, and you knew she, you started to know she was the one, and you knew, I'm going to ask this gal to marry me. And there's nothing in this world, even the fear of her possibly saying no, I don't care because I want her to know how I feel about her. You're single-minded about pursuing her, right? I feel that way when I come home from a conference, when I've been away from my family for a few days. I'm single-minded about seeing my wife and my kids because I miss them so much. On Saturday nights after service, if you ever see me with sort of a dazed look on my face, it's not because I'm having deep spiritual thoughts, it's because... I'm usually single-mindedly, like I'm really tired, number one. And number two, I'm like single-mindedly focused on my Saturday night ritual, which is an all-you-can-eat, or not all-you-can-eat, however you want it, pizza from Domino's with pepperoni, sausage, uh, the, the, the banana peppers, extra cheese, and watching the Ohio State Buckeyes on the DVR. I'm, I'm single-mindedly like, <laughs> now you probably think less of me, like... <laughs> But that's, that's where my mind is going Saturday night. You guys all have things that you're single-mindedly committed to in your lives, right? You're not going to miss it for anything. That's how they felt about the Word, first of all. When, when we talk about the apostles' teaching, talking about the Word of God, those apostles, Peter and John and the others, they, they taught these new believers what the Old Testament said about Jesus, they taught them what Jesus had done while he was here and what Jesus taught himself. And, and as you get a little further down the road, you, you start to see that they taught what God had revealed to them. Like Paul had visions from God and, and he passed on through letters and teaching to these people what God wanted them to know. And these people were devoted to the word of God. And I wonder... Does that describe us as God's church today? Are we a people that are devoted, single-mindedly, 
It's not just listening to the word of God, but, but living it out. And I want to wrestle with some questions because I think sometimes, sometimes if we're honest, what we're really committed to is the word of God as long as it lines up with my own worldview. As long as it doesn't get too uncomfortable, as long as it doesn't clash with where I want to go, then yeah, I'm for it. It's like we got this Bible written in pencil that, yeah, I like that part, but this part, I'm just going to, yeah, that part's a little tough. Uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, I don't like that part. That's, where's that part about love and joy? All right. These people were committed to the word of God in its entirety. They, they were people who believed the truth, they, they spoke the truth, and they lived the truth. And I know that becomes less and less popular, it seems, as time goes on. Less and less popular to, to claim that something you have in your Bible is true, which makes other things not true. I hope we'll be a people that will follow our predecessors' examples and say, we will be people of the word, no matter what it costs. We will stay true to the word of God. I'm committed as your friend and pastor. It, I believe we've got a group of people here that, that love Jesus. And I want to say, if there's any of you in here that really would be honest enough to say, hey, I want to love the word of God, but I got some hangups. Like there's just some, some things in there that, that uh, maybe are intimidating or things that maybe I had a bad experience with, with it being taught a weird way somewhere. I don't know what it is. If, if you are at a place where you want to love the word of God, but something's holding you back, would you please talk to me? I would love to come alongside you just as a friend and say, hey, let, let's work through that because I've found, I'm just saying this because these past five years in, in my life, God's word has become like so precious to me. Not that it wasn't before, but these are the first five years. Someone, someone turned me on to, uh, for me, it was a chronological Bible. There's nothing magical about it, but these are the first five years of my life where I've gone through the word every year for the last five years. And at first, five years ago, when someone said, I read through the Bible every year, I was like, what? <laughs> you know, I read it once in Bible college through, but that's because I had to, and I read it in like two nights or three nights, and I don't think I remembered much, but I checked it off on the... <laughs> But I'm telling you, and it's not that I never miss a day or a couple, but it has become like when I do miss, oh God, I want to get back in there and hear from you again. It's become so precious. So if, if you want to talk about that hunger, it's not just me. There are others in here who would love to come alongside you and just say, hey, let, let's get that hunger going. My friend told me about something called memverse.com. Any of you ever heard of it? A simple online tool. I just heard about it this week. It's important to hide God's word in our heart. You go to members.com and what this program does is it sends you an email. And First, you, you get on there and you say, I want to choose these five or six verses that I want to memorize. I want to get in my brain. And it'll send you an email every so often. And what it does is it takes those verses and it puts the first letter of every word in one square and when you log on through your email, you go in there and see if you can figure out what each of those letters stands for. And it quizzes you on all five or six that are in your queue sporadically. 
so you're not having to remember to get quizzed. You get an email and you sit down and do it. And then when you finish one, it, you can choose another verse to add. And it's a great tool. My friend Will showed it to me just to keep something coming in your email box saying, hey, I'm going to keep God's word in my heart. We need to be people of the word. They were also people of fellowship. Now, that's a word I think a lot of times we sort of have sort of a surface level understanding of it. Like I heard a real cute definition of it once. Something like fellowship is like two fellows in the ship. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's cool. But um, it's a lot more than just being together is what I'm saying. The, the Greek word has a lot more to do with this deep level of sharing. Sharing life. Sharing pain. Sharing ministry. Sharing mission. Sharing joy. Sharing my stuff. It, it's this deep kind of connection. And the way they played that out in this verse, first is the breaking of bread. Now, a lot of times we read that and we, we think right away the, the Lord's Supper and we think of it in formal terms like, like when I go to church once a month and, and we do it there. And there is a sense in the book of Acts and in Corinthians where Paul talks about that, the, the Lord's Supper. You break the bread and drink the, the, the drink and remember the Lord's death. And they did that. But there's also this sense in the early church that as they met together in each other's homes, over a common meal where bread and wine were fairly common, it wasn't unusual for them as early believers to at the end of the meal say, hey, let's remember Jesus right here and right now. Here's some bread, here's some wine. Let's celebrate what he did for us right in our living room, right, right in our dining room. And I thought, wouldn't that be cool? We've done that in some of our missional communities and I want those who believe in Jesus in here to feel that freedom. You don't have to wait to come to this building on the third Sunday of the month to, to remember the Lord's death for you, to break bread and celebrate it with other believers. You could do that with your family on Monday night after you get home from work and you sit down and eat dinner. You can remember the Lord's death. You can make it a very daily thing. The other part of their fellowship was this devotion to prayer. Man, they were people of prayer. We read about that in chapter 1. God told them to wait for the Holy Spirit. And it says they devoted themselves constantly to prayer. Last week it was so beautiful, you guys, to see every one of those burdens that people brought forward to go home with somebody. I think it's beautiful to know that as a body, you guys have been praying for each other this week. I love that. And Katrina said, man, when people start, start praying and getting committed to praying, watch out. God's going to do some awesome stuff. And I believe that. And I want to challenge us to keep being a people that are committed to prayer. I want to ask us, are we people of fellowship? Do we have that kind of sharing with other people? Do we share life with other believers? That's what, part of what missional community is all about. That's part of what I hope we experience here. And that's part of why internet church is not enough. Okay, you can be a person of the word and listen to the internet. You can't be a person of fellowship and just listen to the internet. We need both. And you can see the importance of both. It, it would be horrible the other way too if we got together and had a great time, but 
hey, kind of like Scott's Easter service that I shared about a couple weeks ago where they talked about Easter as just about flowers and, and birdies. You know, there's no word. We're, we're missing out on something there. We need the word and we need fellowship. And, and something cool happened. Two, Acts 2.43, I love this. Everyone, and that everyone is the unbelieving people in Jerusalem. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And the people in the city looking in, seeing what's going on with this new group of people, there's this sense of awe that God's doing something awesome with these people. What's going on over there with those people? There's something different about them. And I wonder, do, do we have that? In today's church, is the world looking in and seeing, wow, there's something supernatural about that group of people. God is doing some stuff. I mean, in this case, the, the apostles were doing signs and wonders. I believe God's still doing his work in our world today. I, I shared this story once. I don't know if you guys heard it about a woman. We prayed over her. She asked for prayer because her heart was... She went in and had some tests and some severe blockages. She was probably in her 60s. She said, would you guys come pray over me? And we did. And we laid hands on her. And, and like two days later, I saw her at the China buffet get loading up a bowl of ice cream. I'm like, what are you doing? Heart, you know. She's like, I went in for a follow-up test the day after you guys prayed for me. They told me I have the heart of an 18-year-old. Worried about that stuff, it tends to spread around the hospital. Like, what, what happened with that lady? Our elders don't know it yet, but the, the young man that I told you about last week, Dylan, who has the, the brain tumor on his brain stem, she asked if we would come, come pray over him and anoint him with oil and just pray for God to heal him. I don't know what God's will is, but I believe God can. I believe God can still work in that way. And I've seen them use stories like that to draw people in the world and say, wow, something special is going on here. Is there anything that the world's looking in and saying, wow, I'm in awe at what God's doing with these people? I hope so. And if not, the, the answer is not for us to go and try to conjure it up. I think the answer is God. It's just for us to get on our knees and say, God, do your thing. Bring glory to your name. Do things that, that can't be explained any other way than by your might and your power. Let the world be looking on so that you'll receive glory. Next, they were generous people. That's an understatement. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions, which is like real estate and goods, which is smaller items, they gave to anyone as he had need. Now, this verse has been a stumbling block for people on both sides of the socialism issue throughout the years. Some people who are really excited about socialism want to look at this and say, see, the Bible teaches socialism. That's why we should go down a socialist path. And other people that aren't socialistic and, and lean towards capitalism are like, man, those early Christians were weird. I don't like socialism, so I don't like that. Well, this is not socialism for a couple reasons. Let me debunk that myth. Number one, this was, do you, do you see the government involved anywhere in here? No. This was completely voluntary on the part of these people. 
that they did this. And it doesn't say they distributed everything equally, does it? How does it say they distributed it? As needed, absolutely. Not to mention you don't really see this arrangement anywhere after Acts chapter 5. You don't hear more about this communal living. So there's some indication that in this exact form it was temporary. But the premise behind it of us being generous with each other does not change. Years later, the author of Hebrews in 1315 said, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. You say, okay, I want to offer God a sacrifice of praise. How do I do that? First, the fruit of lips that confess his name. When you guys were singing, those words were coming from your heart. That was a sacrifice of praise. But he goes on, do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. And I want to ask us, are we a people that love each other generously? I want to say I've seen it in big ways. This week, just one example. We, we ran into someone that had a need for a neighbor with some blankets and some towels because there are like 12 people living in the house next door. Don't know all the ins and outs, but there are a lot of people. There's a cold house. I put it on Facebook, I think Friday, and within 38 minutes, people responded within this church and said, we got it covered. Got him covered. I said, that's awesome. I want that to characterize us as a church. The Bible says the generous man will himself be refreshed. I believe that as a church as well. The generous church will be refreshed. I love that about you guys. I want to keep that up. Are we a generous people? Last but not least, what characterized them was they had what I will call a, a daily gladness. A daily joy or happiness about their lives that characterized them. 46 and 47. Every day, there's the daily, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. So they'd get together in the temple courts as a large group. A lot of people believe just to discuss Jesus and, and even share him with other people. But they also broke bread in their homes. So you got this large group and small group idea going. And they ate together. How many of you say amen to that? They'd like to eat together. <laughs> With glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day is what I want to camp on a little bit. There's a pastor named Warren Wearsby. Who said if you look through the book of Acts. You see this was a group of people that believed in church and Jesus in, in a way that went so far beyond meeting once a week in a room like this. Because this verse says they, they met daily. Acts 2.47 says they, they won souls daily. The, the Lord added to their number daily. Acts 6.1 says they cared for their widows daily, so they cared daily. Acts 17.11 says they searched the scriptures daily. You're hearing that this is so much more than a once-a-week experience for this early church? You think that ought to be the case today? Or you think that was just, yeah. No, it should be the case today. And why was it? Because the risen Jesus was a reality to these people. They really believed that he died and, and rose again and forgave their sins and, and sent the Holy Spirit. Do we believe that? 
Do we believe that in a way that this would make us a people of daily glad faith? As we close, I want to talk about real revolution. Because as I said, there's, there's t- whispers on Facebook of, of revolution, you know. I want to say that real revolution comes not through legislation or education. It comes through the transformation of the gospel. I'm not saying we don't weigh in in those other areas, but at the end of the day, the primary way God wants to bring revolution to our world is through the transformation of the gospel. It's not primarily through legislation. We're not going to bring the hope and change God wants to this world primarily by just voting the right people in or just passing the right laws. It's not primarily through education. We're not going to just teach them more and then they'll, that, that change will come. It's not primarily through that. Those are outward fixes. Oh, I think about the people that dress up, excuse me if you love chihuahuas, those ugly little chihuahuas with cute sweaters and jewels and stuff, like those little rat dogs. You know, just because you put human clothes and jewelry on them, they're not human and they're not cute. They're still ugly little rat dog. Those are outward fixes. True? <laughs> Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. I already saw the look. Just an opinion. <laughs> Real revolution doesn't happen from the outside in. It happens from the inside out. Okay, that's God's plan for revolution. His plan for revolution, the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. You think about that. These, on this day, it was 3,000 people that stepped over from opposing Jesus and the gospel, standing against it, to standing with the fellowship, standing with Jesus in the gospel. You talk about transformation. You talk about a way to bring change and hope to the world. I want you to, as, as we get ready to close, listen to the before and afters in these verses. Just a few from the New Testament. Romans 6.17, they're not going to be up here, but just listen. Romans 6.17a, but thanks be to God, here's the before, that though you used to be slaves to sin, after you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Listen to this before, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. After, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Before, Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, after. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these 
anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. One more before, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Quite a list, huh? And then he says, and that is what some of you were. After, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Before, the old is gone. After, the new has come. Now, aren't the befores in those verses exactly what we want to get rid of in our lives, in the lives around us? And aren't the afters exactly what we want to see? Now, let me ask you, what happened between the befores and the afters in those verses? Did did the right guy win a presidential election? Did somebody teach a great class on character counts? No. Jesus happened. Jesus happened. The gospel happened. Transformation happened from the inside out. That's what I'm counting on for hope and change in this world. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 1.16. I wonder if you could say this with me in your heart. If we could say this together with Paul. I am not ashamed of the gospel. The good news about Jesus. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew. Then for the Gentile. My plea to us as a group is just to say whatever we do as we step out from here tonight, would we be willing to commit as a group of believers to say, I will rest my hope for change in this world in Jesus and the power of his gospel above all else. Some of us need encouraged in that. We've been discouraged as we look around the world. Some of us just need encouragement tonight. Some of us maybe even need a rebuke because there may be some in this room that have voted in every election since they've been old enough to, but they've never once shared Jesus with someone. And I want to say, why is that? Could it be that you're betraying your real hope is, is not in Jesus, but but then who's in the White House or the Senate or the House? And I'm not saying not to be involved. I voted. I hope you voted. And I hope you voted biblically. But our primary hope is in Jesus. And I want to tell you one other thing. I said that regardless of what happened at that election, God's primary hope for change in this world was the same before and after. One other thing that is true is there's still a world system out there of sin that's evil that God hates and there's still a world of people out there that God loves and wants to save. And as we look at the the evil around us in our world, I want to close with a picture uh, from 
from one of my favorite books, uh, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Rings. I won't get too far into it in case you're not sci-fi or into hobbits too much. But I'll explain just a little bit. There's, there's a hobbit named Frodo Baggins, right? Okay, and he's got this ring that, that the evil dudes are after. And he's talking to his friend Gandalf. And, and his friend Gandalf is just breaking the news that these evil dudes are trying to come get this ring and that to, to protect the world, Frodo's going to have to leave his safe little corner of the world in the Shire and take it to Mount Mordor, which is a horrible dark land, and, and, and burn the ring. Gandalf tells him that this evil, which he calls the shadow, it comes and goes at different times. And Frodo said to Gandalf, I wish it hadn't come in my time. I wish the shadow hadn't returned in my time. And you know what Gandalf said to him? He said, that is not for us to decide. What is up for us to decide is what we do with the time given us. I think the, the lesson is obvious. It's not for us to decide how evil the world is around us. It, that is what it is. It's, it's how you and I will respond with the time given us. Will we be faithful as the early church was faithful to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and share it with the world that needs it.